0: Well, thanks so much for having me, uh, Matt and Joey. Um, I was really looking forward to being with you all. I'm here. You're not here. But uh, as Joey said, my name is Matt Lepine. I'm a pastor at Cornerstone, and I also uh, am a lecturer with the Salt School of Theology. So it is certainly quite a time to be going through the book of Daniel. We don't often feel like we do right now. So individually, we often face uncertainty. There's things that happen in our lives, but collectively, to be in a spot like this where we don't know what the future holds, we feel as if we have no good sense of when these difficulties are gonna end. We really don't know, will things be better in 12 months than they are right now? There's nothing like anxiety to make you feel emotionally spent. And so maybe some of you are really weary today, like you've come to the end of a path just to find out that it led nowhere. Like a man who spent years building a home only to see it washed away in a flood, or a woman who's prayed and wept over a child who's wayward. So perhaps this is the question you're asking today. Will we be okay? How does this text, Daniel 10 through 12, encourage us today? So we might have just a small taste of what Daniel was experiencing at the beginning of our text. Our story begins in the third year of King Cyrus. We know from Ezra that Cyrus had decreed the rebuilding of the wall in the first year of his reign. Now in the third year, we read in verse 2 that Daniel has been mourning for three weeks. We're not told why, but Daniel is in the twilight of his life. He likely would have traveled with those who'd returned to rebuild the temple if he had been able to, but he's probably in his 80s right now. He's at that age where there's very few dreams that are left to be fulfilled. And yet he had one dream that probably buoyed his hope for the 50 years that he was under three different Persian kings. It was the dream of Israel returning to God's place where they could worship him and they could live under his blessing. So we can only imagine what the decree from Cyrus to rebuild the temple would have meant to him. It was a miracle. It was an act of God. Wendell Berry says that old age is often a time when the dignity of the past and of the future is taken away. The past because no one can remember it, and the future because no one can imagine it. Daniel's in that place. He remembers the past. The temple in Jerusalem. He was a boy at the time of the exile. There were few like him. And we're told in Ezra that there's a difference between the people who can remember and the people who can't remember. The ones who remember are weeping at the establishment of the foundation of the temple while the others rejoiced. And we're not told why. Those who could remember, they knew why, but they were alone in that knowledge. So Daniel also imagined a future, the restoration of the place that he remembers. But now the work has stopped. It seems that another act of God is going to be required to get it started again. So just two years after the degree from Cyrus to rebuild the temple, the work on the temple is stopped with no fixed timetable to continue it. Daniel faces his own death and he faces the frustration of all of his hopes. And so at the beginning of our story, Daniel is east of Eden. He's in exile. He's in Babylon, the place of confusion with all his disappointed hopes standing on the banks of the Tigris, and has been mourning for three weeks. So let's read in verse 5. This is Daniel chapter 10, verse 5. I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his weight. His body was like beryl. So beryl is like a translucent uh, mineral. The green shade is called emerald. no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. So this scene has some common features with other parts of Scripture. The linen is similar to the, the messengers, the angelic messengers in Ezekiel and Revelation. We are told that his face was like lightning, which is exactly how the heavenly messenger appeared in Matthew 28, just after Jesus' resurrection. His arms and legs were like burnished bronze, similar to the appearance of Jesus in Revelation 1. In both cases, the voice is overwhelming here and in Revelation 1, like the sound of multitude or the roar of many waters. And the effect on Daniel is immediate. Even those who didn't see the vision hid themselves. So we all know the fear of being in the presence of something awe-inspiring. It's like, you know, staring through the glass at a majestic lion, and then you realize that the pane of glass, you know, two down, is missing. We read that the men fled to hide themselves, and Daniel falls on his face in a stupor. So let's continue reading. Now in verse 10. And behold, a hand touched me, And set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. For now I have been sent to you. And when he'd spoken this word, I stood trembling. And then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. So here's the picture. Daniel sees this awful vision of the heavenly messenger. We get our word awful from the word awe, right? Which is just to be fearfully overwhelmed by power or greatness. When he sees this fearful uh, sight, he immediately takes the posture of someone who's ashamed. He falls face down to the ground, into the dust. The shame is a, is a sense in which we're inadequate and he's inadequate for this vision. Daniel is afraid. He's specifically mindful of the shame as we know from chapter nine, the sh- his shame and the shame of his people. He references their open shame in chapter nine. We know also from from chapter 9, that Daniel has been anticipating the return from exile, that he had hoped, that he had prayed for it, that he had confessed the sins of his people, that he had humbled himself before God in the hope that God would restore them, that he would make his face to shine on them. So Daniel has been praying for the smile of God, the face of readiness to bless. And last week we heard about that previous vision, and now after Daniel's three weeks of mourning, God is kind enough to give him one final vision before he dies. So the touch raises him from the ground to his hands and knees. And notice the messenger from God touches Daniel. He'll do it two more times to ease his fear. We all know the difference between hearing the words, don't be afraid, and hearing them with a hand on your shoulder. C. S. Lewis understands this, this uh, difference towards the end of the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, Aslan greets a frightened Lucy with a warm lick of his tongue. Touch can communicate courage. Any parent knows that a hug can transmit courage to a child far more effectively than a scolding. I I had this thing I used to do with my daughter Eden when I'd drop her off at Sunday school class. She would say uh, "You know, that she was afraid. She didn't want to go to class. And I would say, let me give you some of my courage. So I would hug her and then I would just shake like this, like something was going from my body to hers. Of course, she was in on the joke, but I would say to her, Oh, you took too much. Now I'm afraid. And she would smile. And she would know that she was loved and that she was okay. I did give her courage. So the touch brings Daniel to his hands and knees. And then the words of affirmation that he is a man greatly loved take him to his feet, but trembling. When we read this description of Daniel as a man greatly loved, I can't help thinking of another man who is loved. Jesus' disciple John was the man Jesus loved. And he also received a revelation about the future, which he recorded in the book of Revelation. And both of these men have been channels for communicating God's love to us, to you, to me. We have this vision here in Daniel and the one in Revelation because we are loved. So let's keep reading in verse 15. When he had spoken to me, according to these words, I turned my face towards the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of men touched my lips. Then I opened my voice and I said to him who stood before me, O Lord, by reason of the vision pains have come on me and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me and no breath is left in me. So as I picture this scene, he's taken his feet, he's endured this awful kindness from the messenger, but he cannot bring himself to to talk from his shame, from his sense of inadequacy in the face of this holiness and greatness. So he's standing upright, but then he lowers what he can, which is his head, to the dust. And you remember that humans are dust. We lower ourselves as a symbol of our sinfulness, of our inadequacy, of our unworthiness, and of our death will return to the dust. But again, in God's kindness, the messenger touches Daniel now the second time, in this case to take away his muteness and give him courage to speak. And when he speaks, Daniel explains that the appearance of the messenger has caused great pain and weakness and that no breath is left in him. Remember what I've just said about humans, that we're dust, we're from the ground. And we know from Genesis that we're enlivened by the breath of God, and now we're encouraged by the breath of God in us. Daniel is asking for a second breath, a renewal of the courage that comes from God's presence, that God is with him as he's with us. This second ruach, that's the word for breath or spirit, is exactly what God gives to his children. God is with us now. So now for a third time, the messenger touches him. And we read in verse 18, again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me and said, oh man, greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened. And I said, let my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. So now after the third touch, Daniel is finally ready to hear the message from this heavenly messenger. And the messenger repeats this message that Daniel is loved and that he should be at peace, and he encourages him. He puts courage into him. That's what the word means, to end courage. The word courage is from the Hebrew word hazach. It's a fun word to say. It's a really encouraging word. I I feel encouraged just by saying it. I used to say this to my high school students when they'd complain that the reading was too hard or the assignments were too much. I would say, "Hazach." And the messenger literally tells Daniel, "Hazach, va, hazach." It's an idiom that means, "Be courageous, be very courageous." but literally it's "Have courage and have courage." And this is the theme, isn't it, of your series on Daniel. It's the whole point of this book, and it's the whole point of this message that the heavenly messenger brings. He wants Daniel to know some things that will give him courage. So this is our point today. I asked earlier, will we be okay? Bad things are going to happen. But God gives us wisdom or insight about the situation because he loves us. And so that we can have courage. This wisdom or insight that he's going to offer us here is a bit like a movie preview. So a movie preview takes little clips of the movie, like from here and there, and they're all disconnected and puts them into the form of a sort of short story. So we get the general gist of the movie. But often there's big gaps between dialogue and between events that are in the movie preview. Prophecy is just like this. The tendency of prophecy is to leave big gaps in what seems to be a seamless narrative, seamless short story. This is what theologians will call telescoping. It's like seeing two mountain peaks in the distance and not realizing that they're actually way far apart. They just look right next to each other. So we get enough of this to know kind of where this is going. This is how prophecy works. It's like a movie preview. And this preview gives us a window of insight into the future without giving us all the details. So this is what we have here. We have a preview. A preview that gives wisdom or insight about the situation because God loves us and so that we can have courage. So that's scene one. Now let's go to scene two uh, at the beginning of chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse two. Let's read. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia and a fourth shall be far richer than them all. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up against all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he is risen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides. So verses two through five are the clearest of this oracle. And this oracle is stunning. The whole thing is incredible prophecy. Uh, just incredible in its detail, d- down to the events. In fact, so much so that many liberal scholars actually date this after the events just because it couldn't be a prophecy. It gets it so right. After Cyrus will arise four kings, Cambyses, Smyrtus, Darius I, and then Xerxes. Xerxes is famous for his wealth and power. You can read in Herodotus, for example, that he invaded Greece with nearly 2.5 million military personnel which were gathered from his whole kingdom. A variety of peoples in his kingdom spanned most of the known world. His expulsion from Greece after that invasion was a tipping point in global power that eventually led to the rise of Alexander the Great. Alexander is likely the mighty king here in verse 3 and his four generals are the subject of verse 4. So after this, then, verses 5 through 20 give an overview of the two divisions of the Greek empire which form after that. The the Ptolemaic uh, division in the south, which is uh, headquarters in Egypt, and the Seleucid in the north in Syria. So these verses actually don't just speak to two kings. It's like the movie preview. It's a succession of kings, actually, in two warring empires. And again, like a, a movie preview, we have this, te- this prophetic telescoping, a concise narrative in short clips that cover a long period of time. So it's not just two kings, it's a whole line of kings. But let me get into some of the details. If you want to get much more on this, the most accessible source I've found is an article on, fr- on Daniel 11 from Sam Storms. So if you want to look that up, feel free. But I'm just going to kind of give you a point-by-point point sort of fly over here. In verse 6, the alliance is likely between Ptolemy and Antiochus, Ptolemy II and Antiochus II. And it involves Ptolemy's daughter, Bernice, who then was murdered. So point Seleucids. Ptolemy III retaliates for the murder uh, of his sister. So point Ptolemy's. Uh, Verse 10 then refers to Seleucus III and Antiochus III, but especially Antiochus III's victory, over Nicholas, the Egyptian general, so point Seleucids. Verse 11 refers to Ptolemy IV, retaliating and achieving victory at Raphia near Palestine, point Ptolemy's. Verse 13 talks about another shift in power, as Antiochus III again gains power, and in verse 15 achieves victory in Sidon, an Egyptian fortified city, point Seleucids. He will offer peace, Antiochus III, and give Ptolemy V, his daughter Cleopatra. Not that Cleopatra. However, he eventually comes up against a commander, Lucius Cornelius Scipio, a Roman general who humbles him so he returns to his country disgraced where he's murdered. And then in verse 20, Seleucus IV sends an oppressor, Heliodorus, who attempts to pillage the treasury of Jerusalem. It's stunning how detailed this prophecy is about the events That are to come. In summary, verses 5 through 20 are a summary of the line of the kings from the north and from the south who will arise in the days that follow, who will be warring in the midst of this. But the most important section here is verses 25 or 21 through 35. They are a description of the rise and activities of the single most hated figure of this time for the Jews, Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus IV. Verse 21, he maneuvers into power over the rightful heir Demetrius. Verse 22, he overwhelms his enemies, possibly Ptolemy the sixth, possibly the Jewish high priest, Ananias. Verses 25 through 27, his activities in Egypt. In 28, he comes back to suppress religious liberty in Judah. And in 31 is the big event. In 168, Antiochus Epiphanes places a statue of Zeus on the, on the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. He sacrifices pigs. He forbids circumcision. He forces the elders of Jerusalem to eat the pigs and he kills all those who disobey. If you want to know more about this, you can read about it in First and Second Maccabees. But so the Maccabees take action. First, Matthias Maccabees and then Judah Maccabees and Judah Maccabees three years after this abomination of desolation rides into Jerusalem with Hosanna's and rededicates the temple. So the Maccabees are the people who are referred to as wise or those who have insight here. And they have courage because of this insight. We are to be like them. That's, what, that's how the text represents them. Okay, so finally, in this scene, the major dispute about is who is the subject of the prophecies in 36 through 45. I'm not going to offer a detailed speculation here, but I want to offer two comments about the text. First, the first chunk of verses from 36 to 39 probably refers to Antiochus' Epiphanes, But Antiochus is just a model or a type of all the arrogant rulers who exalt themselves over God. A type is an event that's ordained by God to be repeated in history. So a type is an event that's repeated. The first event then is the sign or the example of the greater event that is to come. So types and telescoping are two ways that God gives us previews about what he's about to do. So a major theme of the book of Daniel is the arrogance of kings in contrast to those who have wisdom or insight. Those who have wisdom or insight understand that God is king. But so whoever this king is in verse 36 and following, he also represents a sort of human king who does what he wants only for his own honor. So this may be Antiochus, Epiphanes, Herod the Great. It might be Titus. Titus again comes into Rome and desolates the temple in AD 70. And perhaps there is another coming who will do this again. So this may represent Antiochus, Herod the Great, Rome, modern-day rulers or even rulers to come. The point of this text is that self-glorification is foolishness. God will not give his glory to another. The second comment I want to make about this is I don't know precisely who the second chunk refers to, but it also seems to be a type that's highly charged with Old Testament symbolism. It perhaps refers both to things that have happened and things to come. It's highly symbolic that it draws on images which are found throughout the Old Testament. So observe verse 45. The themes of the sea, the sea and the chaos of the sea and the holy mountain are present throughout the Old Testament. Yahweh is the God who brings order to the chaos. He rules the world in righteousness and justice. He sets limits to the sea, and he tames Leviathan. He rules from his holy mountain, whether that's Eden or Sinai, Jerusalem or Zion. So verse 45 is a type of the powers of the world extending chaos and sin against God's holy mountain. When a king aligns himself with chaos and sets himself against God's holy mountain, he will be destroyed. Whatever this references, I trust it will become clear. But what is the point is that God is in control. He's on the throne and he rules with righteousness and justice. So let's turn to chapter 12, scene three of our story. In closing, I want to just point out there's three reminders and an invitation in this text. In the poetic language of verses one and three, there's three reminders and an invitation. Let's read Daniel 12, 1 through 3. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge over your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as there has never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people will be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in that book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like stars forever. So, three reminders. First in verse 1, there will be times of distress. We're in a time right now, verse 1 promises it, there will be times, there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred. We're in a time now, there's gonna be a greater time coming. We must not be naive about the difficulties we face. It is so easy as a human, especially in 21st century America, to assume that the world is not dangerous. To assume that there's no powers of evil at work in our world. We are reminded at moments like this, that it is. There will be times of distress. But we look again in verse 1 and we see that God sees this and he will rescue us. In the first part of the verse, we see that God has set a watcher, a guard. The word charge over means someone who stands watch over. And at the end of the verse, God promises deliverance. But we have a better Michael. Jesus himself has delivered us from the power of sin and death so that our verdict is secure and he stands as our advocate before the Father. So there will be times of distress that God sees and rescues us. And then in verse 2, the third reminder is we have hope. Many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. This is our hope. It's our resurrection hope. Our hope is the exact same one that Daniel possessed in his 80s, toward the end of his life, the hope of those who will die. All of us will die. Who will sleep for a time and then will rise and reign with Christ forever. We do not mourn like those who have no hope and we do not suffer anxiety like those who have no hope. What is the worst thing that could happen to us? We will sleep to be awakened with joy. So there's three reminders. There will be times of distress. God sees and he rescues us, and we also have hope. Finally, this text is an invitation. Verse 3 references those who are wise. We have an invitation into wisdom today. Foolishness is self-exaltation, like the kings who will be destroyed. Foolishness is those who live as if God is not king. Foolishness sets its hope on life and control, and toilet paper. But wisdom hopes in God. Wisdom hopes in the life to come that he's preparing for his saints. Paul prays this in Ephesians for us. He prays that we would have wisdom, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. That's exactly what Daniel's given to us today. In the knowledge of him who loves us, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you will know what is the hope to which he's called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Do we possess that wisdom today? I asked the question at the beginning, will we be okay? The answer is we will. So we can have courage. Bad things are going to happen, but God gives us wisdom or insight because he loves us so that we can have Courage. God sees us in our distress and he gives us just a preview of what he will do. So finally, as chapter 12 closes, Daniel is again left there standing by the river and the reference reminds us of another man who stands by a river seeing a vision. And this is the picture of hope that we have when God will rule from his holy mountain and we will drink in the peace and life that comes from him. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street in the city. And on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding fruit in each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits, the prophets, just like Daniel, has sent his messenger to show his servants what must soon take place. And that's the hope that we wait for. Let's pray. God in heaven, you know our hearts. You know the stress that we are under. You know the anxiety that so many people who are hearing these words feel. It's the same anxiety that your servant Daniel felt and you greatly loved him and you gave him a vision, I pray that those who are hearing these words from this book would feel that love, that they would know that this vision and the vision in Revelation are given to show us that we have hope that is stored up with you. We have a glorious inheritance that we will come into. I pray that these people would be encouraged by the fact that the worst thing that could happen is to sleep and to be awakened with joy in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.